0: Hi, Jonathan, thank you for being on the show. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your work?
1: Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Anusha. Uh, to be here on your first podcast of Being. So I, I was actually inspired by your title, uh, Professor Colwyn Travarthan. My mentor and, and good friend and colleague, uh, eminent child psychologist, um, he has produced exceptional papers, research papers and book chapters and so on. Um, and he always threatened to write a book uh, for himself, in a, four, a single authored book. Um, and he was going to call that book human being. All right. Okay. So in other words, human being, like, I think something of the play on the word or the the, the, the roots of the word that, that you're playing on um, to, to emphasize the point that that being in the world is very important. And there's something particular and special about being a human in the world. Um, that he is uh, has scholarly and scientific insight from doing now, gosh, seventy years of research. He's ninety three in March, wow, um, and uh, and we're just getting together an Oxford University Press volume published in twenty twenty four to celebrate him. So um, he's a superstar, and and your title of the podcast series reminded me of him, and I thought, well, this is something worthy to. To support something. so so my background I, I studied chemistry um, as uh, as an undergraduate and psychology in the United States where you could do double double um, bachelor's degrees, right um, but I finished my degree in uh, the University of Leeds in England, which was only a single degree so that was just chemistry um, and moved into neuroscience because that was a natural transition from chemistry to um, understanding how those molecules were composed within s- neural systems. Um, that that produce mine. So so postgraduate study in neuroscience, and then a PhD in developmental neuroscience, to begin to understand and looking at the brain development to understand well how how does that basic formulation of molecules within a you know single fertilised ovum, for example, with all its genetic material and um, organelles, to be able to to power it into the, the differentiated development of a very sophisticated organism like a a mouse or a human being. Um, and, and that was very fascinating studying molecular genetics. Um, but but I think my my real traction came discipline hopping from um, the PhD in developmental neurobiology to developmental psychology. Right. So working with David Lee allowed me to understand the psychological root of everything that our minds are. Right. So um, and and it was wonderful to move from psychiatry to that position because. You know ultimately studying psychology and neuroscience allows one to understand neuropsychiatric conditions better and then to give some kind of practical improvement right so because psychiatric conditions where the mind is something is, is is not working optimally it's not not quite right so um so we want to be able to help that situation but we need to understand how the mind is constructed or structured rather so so dave lee um was a gibsonian psychologist so he worked um he was actually one of the first computational psychologists uh, in, in the world at the time, in the 1960s. Okay. Um, he was at the University of Cambridge with a computer science background, but doing a PhD in psychology, um, which was very rare at the time, so quantifying um, uh, the psychological phenomena at, at a high level. Uh, and he, then he postdoc doc would um, I think if I'm not mistaken, he post would at Harvard um, uh, and he was in the psychology department there. but he said it was rather boring. <laughs> and, he, and at the time at the time, Gibson was becoming a well-known name at Cornell, which is not far away in in uh, in, in uh, upstate New York. Mm-hmm. So he went in and and uh, moonlighted with um with with Jimmy Gibson and worked with him for some years, developing a computational theory of of how he perceived the world and interact in that with that world um, of affordances. Um, with our own purpose, right? So so these are the kind of key um, elements that that he devised that's actually at the heart of what's now known as ecological psychology. Um, it's the self-environment coupling, right? Through perception yeah. and the capacity for action, right? So we perceive the world and we then, can then engage with that world with our, with our own particular purpose, which is our sense of agency or our agent of capacity um, and it's this foundation that we can do something in the world, which begins the formation of the self, uh, psychological self, right? Uh, and what, Gibby, what Jimmy Gibson's work did was say, well, the world is not a static world of images on in a textbook, which psychology had typically been studying, a facial expression of anger, a facial expression yes. of frustration and so on. These are static images. He says, no, the world is constantly moving and we're perceiving that moving and we're engaging in that movement purposefully. And this is what Dave added onto. It was a mathematical formula that described how we engage with that world purposefully. It's his so-called uh, tau variable, um, which is the basis of his tau theory, which is effectively a theory of how we engage in purpose through action, right? Okay. Now, t- tau theory has had its ups and downs. Um, whether it, Dave uh, proposes it as a like the principal informational variable of perceiving and acting in the world purposefully okay um, and it was the favorite theory for decades but but then came under attack in the early 2000s and as is, and is subsequently that sort of research area has has receded um because it's not certain whether or not the tau variable itself is true okay i'm getting a little bit technical here but but the the um the take home message is is uh whether whether or not tau is used or not is, is not important. What Dave discovered and, and really included in his theory was some basic principles that were constantly moving in the world purposefully with little goal directed actions, which he called tau directed goal directed act tower directed okay um, goal acquisitions. And that meant that we were constantly sort of bootstrapping our perception into the future, so called prospective perception, that we're looking into the future at all times. Yes. We need to be looking into the future at all times because we're living things that need to predict how the world is unfolding but we also need to predict and and intrinsically know how we unfold to engage in that world and you couple the two your expectation of the world and your knowledge of yourself acting in that world to be able to do things like catch a ball flying in the air uh, or to be able to anticipate a social partner and their um, their understanding in a more sophisticated manner right so so the idea that we perceive prospectively into the future is very, very important. And that in fact, our, the total of our perception is made up of a composition of small precept, prospective perceptual uh, feats, right? Um, that's really, really fundamental. Okay, so, so now getting back to your robot. Now we perceive in the world, we perceive and predict the world prospectively and we engage the world prospectively of our own agency. So we're driven to, to, to engage in that. Well, when we do, we produce certain biomechanical effects and the world is structured obviously by, mm-hmm. by mechanical and biomechanical laws, um, which create certain trajectories of acceleration and deceleration or the rate of, it, rate of change of acceleration and deceleration. And these are the perceptual, perceptual elements, right? So this is the whole point of Gibsonian psychology is we're not looking at static pieces and putting them together. We're actually looking at flow. You know, he's looked at the visual flow, always looking at how we uh, coordinate and couple into flow. Now we prospectively perceive flow. So we have to uh, prospectively control our flow to engage with the flow of the external world, right? Okay, so flow is all about the dynamics of bodies, right? So bodies are actually soft. We've got skeletons that are hard, right? And they're rigid, so they can uh, structure and, and make things quite precise in terms of our flow. But ultimately they're, they're, they're soft fluid things. Um, and movements are soft fluid things that have particular dynamics, right? Okay, this is a major difference in terms of robot human interaction. This is a major difference between how robots are organized and structured mechanically and, and computationally and how biological systems or biological organisms like you know, mammals, humans, primates uh, and so on are or, or, or organized and structured because, uh, because the robot is um, calculating its movements and positions uh, in a very mechanical manner. Um, and it's, it's typically a rigid object that uses, um, you know, gears and levers uh, and or pistons or whatever um, to produce those movements and they don't produce flow, like right? they produce mechanical movements. That's why robots are, you know, block, block like um, uh, movements, which don't flow, right? And you can program the flow into it, but actually roboticists have been reticent to do that with, with very good effect. And you can also use um, other kinds of, um, you know, motion things that are more elastic or hydrodynamic or, you know, uh, things like that. And, and that's, those are improvements, uh, in, in robotics, certainly. Um, but ultimately they, they still retain this very mechanical property. So we don't perceive their flow. Um, and that's one thing that sets us apart is that we don't actually, um, flow with the, the robots don't flow with us. Right. So, so, so that, that's, that's a kind of very basic issue, um, but also They don't, the the robots themselves are not alive, right? So they're not living things. And because they're not living things, we can sense that because we see them as mechanical things imitating living things.
0: Coming back to Uncanny Valley, which is how we see, uh, yeah, that is uh, what you just explained, that is we see robots as mechanical stuff imitating uh, human-like actions. So um, when I was trying to understand how this uh, effect actually works, I found out about this theory called theory of mind, which talks about uh, mirror neurons uh, and how empathy works uh, based off of mirror neurons. So when two humans are talking, how we empathize with each other is by looking at subtle facial reactions and kind of mimicking them to understand how they feel. And. And this is how mirror neurons work, and that is how empathy works. And when you're talking to a robot, you can't necessarily have, like, you can't mimic mimic that there is this huge visual nonverbal cues that you can't track off of a robot because um, it is not human. And I think, um, and then uh, the other problem that I came back to was the context and intent so this is again in conversations and not I mean, necessarily in movements where robots are talking so they don't exactly know um how this person is feeling and most of the conversations that we have uh, are very dynamic where we are trying to understand how the other person is feeling and then phrase the, our re- responses
1: the Those artificial intelligence algorithms um, are not actually intelligent in the same way that organic life forms are intelligent. So the the processing is, is quite different. It's not based on an understanding, an integrative understanding of all those texts, that they read one text and they understand that text, they read another text, they understand that text, they read another book and they understand something about the nuance of emotion and love or conflict and passion. You know, in, in, in uh, that we would read in, in human literature, um, they're sim- simply comparing patterns, right? So it's a very superficial reproduction of a pattern. So that's a model. So the, they're 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 trying to develop models about what these um, linguistic utterances on strings of text um, um, would 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 look like, right? Um, but fundamentally, they don't have intelligence in the same way: creativity, understanding, an integrative capacity to appreciate. The, the multidimensionality um, of feeling and experience that those books uh, represent when we read them. So, so they're, they're quite different things, um, robots and uh, artificial intelligence, algorithms uh, and, and human beings.
0: The models are very smart at um, predicting, based on uh, predicting the next word or the next sentence to sound or mimic what a human would say but i don't think they necessarily understand the intent or the emotion of the other person in the conversation and i think to be able to achieve that it is very important to understand how we understand the intent of the other person or the emotional state of the other person which we um, can you tell us a bit about how that works how do we make how do we perceive other person's intent or emotional state
1: but so so, so absolutely, the mirror neurons are are, are quite critical to this. Um, it, but just to look at the nuance of 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 how you're explaining that, we the, the the mirror neuron system doesn't allow us to mimic the other person's actions or intentions or feelings and their actions, but rather they um they resonate um, within us their intentions and feelings of uh, of their actions. so their are perceived, they're perceived our okay. perception of their actions right so so, so, so the idea of resonance um, mirror neuron resonance is really really critical because you know the one set of um of neurons that uh that that elicit an action with this particular intention and this particular affect or feeling within that intention that same or, or, or very comparable network will be um, resonating or firing in the observer right so so that's, in a, that's an intrinsic or an implicit understanding of the other person's feeling and intention. So it's not an explicit understanding or one that's reflective and therefore available to be mimicked. So it's, okay. it's, we, don't, we don't mimic it, but we resonate. What that means is that we don't need to think about it. We just feel yes, yes. the other person directly, yeah. right? So that's direct intersubjective perception of the other's intentions and feelings. So I know how you're feeling, Intrinsically, I can I can consciously now reflect on that and say, oh yes, I, I do sense that you know Anusha is, I don't know, anxious or whatever. I mean not saying that you are, I'm just okay. but, but, but we can reflect on, on on our on our resonance. And that's what you do and psychotherapists do or psychoanalysts do, or um, you know, uh, probably good managers would do or good professionals. We we can reflect on those resonances and become aware of our feelings and and uh, and therefore more knowledgeable about the other person's feelings um but but before that it's it's an implicit thing so so we know that from from direct um direct neural resonance rather than a, a kind of mimicking and and this is this is really critical because that suggests that there's a fundamental psychobiological link between yes. human beings when they're engaging with each other and and that we know uh, for almost certain that that such a thing exists right and then we can layer our reflective and cognitive Um, tools on top and produce linguistic explanations of it right so the robot doesn't have that and and i I should say that the the my explanation of flow and perception of goal directed or prospective uh, actions and their flow is really important because we communicate the intentions and feelings in the flow of a movement right so if i'm angry i make a certain kind of it's a postural composition but also a flow right it's a it's a pounding in that case or if i'm gentle and soothing and be a kind of gentle soothing flow and and that has different so-called vitality affects what what the developmental psychologist and psychiatrist dan stern would call vitality affects right the the feeling of being alive right the feeling like and i'm impactful or languid or restful or soothing or aggressive or angry but all of these have a certain temporal spatiotemporal flow or flow right now dancers use this to convey emotion feeling thought on the stage and dance musicians use this in the way that they're creating the 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 musicality with their instruments poets use this in terms of the prosody and rhythm of poetry Uh, and of course in drama and acting on tv or the 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 film or on stage actors are always using this these vitality dynamics so so danston is a really interesting character who worked with the new york ballet um, to guide and advise them based on neuroscience and, uh, and and psychology and psychiatry, so so robots don't have any vitality affects programmed into them yet, yeah, right? Yes,
0: yes. Um, and
1: and this is a kind of missing field of, ro- of robotics or and uh, HCI is that this lack of recognition of the affectivity of human communication, um, you know, and, and so without without that affectivity, then we're not going to feel comfortable interacting with a robot. Now it is possible, I would expect to program in those vitality affects, to program in that reciprocity and intrinsic, like imitate the kind of neural resonance that's going on with very fast processing and very fast modulations, Um, but nobody's doing that yet. And even if somebody did do that, well, you're still going to be simply imitating. You're not actually recreating the thing itself, the essence of of the thing. And, And whenever it slips, we'll sense that, right? So whenever the model begins to slip, um, and 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 not fulfill um, the the expectations that we have as biological organisms, we're then going to ha- create this kind of dissonance, um, and be skeptical that the model's real and feel uneasy about it, right? So so it's you know with AI and robotics at the moment, it's all about creating a beautiful illusion, right? And it's a question of how how far, yeah. how far can you go with that beautiful illusion? And and at the moment, it's quite crude, but because it's all new, we're impressed by it. Um, it will get better, um, but so we'll get better at spotting the flaws as well. So, um, yeah. So anyway, I, I wanted to pick up on that, the the, the neural resonance bit, because it, it, it's really important. As soon as you start saying that we have to think about it, that we have to mimic, it suggests that we're actually cognitively processing information and then uh, acting out. But that's not the case. It's actually something much more fundamental yeah. that's tied to our physiology, our autonomic system. Heart rate, arousal levels, feeling at a very basic level, at a primary level, not this kind of secondary or tertiary levels of awareness, um, and it's really about how human beings are able to coordinate with each other. You know, I, I'm in Scotland, um, and we have the Scottish Enlightenment here, which followed on the coattails of the European Enlightenment. And Adam Smith was a Scottish philosopher who's very well known for his um, theory of um, uh, capitalism. You know, this this how self-interest and material gain uh, ends up serving the common interest of the society. So in other words, greed is good, capitalism is fine. And, and he's often cited for this, but um, he he also wrote a book called um, The Theory of Human Sentiment uh, and Moral Reason, I believe. Um in that book, which is a counterbalance to his treaty on capitalism, uh, he says that we all feel our fellows feeling, you know, what he termed fellow feeling. So, if my fellow is feeling uh, sad. I also feel sad, um, also with my fellow. Or if my fellow is uh, uh, is is hurt or in pain, I feel my fellow's pain or hurt. And therefore, there's a also a self-interest to help our our fellow in fellowship, right? In in, in companionship, um, which which spoke about our moral obligation to each other, which was in some senses self-serving because we don't want to feel pain. Therefore, we also don't want our fellow to feel pain. Um, but nevertheless, creates a kind of social cohesion uh, and social harmony, and that that we intrinsically uh, are compelled to look after each other's um, emotional and affective well-being, uh, their psychological well-being. So,
0: yeah, uh, thank you for explaining neural resonance. And yeah, I do agree with the fellow feeling concept. That is, I but I also think that everybody behaves a certain way or feels a certain way based on the experiences that they've had over their lifetime. I think they're all. Uh, shaped by their experience. Apart from the like the theory of mind, the next part was the social. Connect. The next question that I asked was, why do people communicate in the first place? And it, I think the re, the purpose of communication has evolved over time, like over ages. That is, initially it was just to tell stories, or gather data, just or like share information of resources or danger, and then it started evolving and now we are in a time where people manipulate for positive or negative connotations to influence others and pursue it pursue others so i think the purpose of communication has changed over time and we do look for a social connection uh, when we are trying to connect to another person through communication and i don't think that aspect like the sociocultural cultural aspect exists for robots
1: so you're looking at the kind of semiotics or biosemiotics of meaning making, and these are all things that are fundamental to living things and how living things make sense of the world, um, as opposed to uh, to to robots and and also to language, right? So the things that you're talking about are are bef- are underneath language. Um, so we often, when we talk about communication, focus a lot of attention on language. So the verbal productions, or the written language, or you know, and especially with AI now in terms of um, you know, these generative models, their language models. Um, so it's, we, we, we spend a lot of time in that, but, but we're fundamentally pre-linguistic organisms, right? So, so language is very helpful, but if you get rid of language, you can still have a meaningful life and a very rich and take technical and capable life. Um, and indeed, there are many humans that don't have language um, or don't use language. But they have very rich and meaningful lives, so yeah. So, I, but I'm I'm impressed that that you, that you're taking the conversation there in the context of human-computer interaction because, for me, it's a missing such a big missing piece. Um, and you know, human-computer interaction they've, they've taken Gibson's work. So you know, for the idea of affordances. So Gibson was the person who coined the term affordances. You know, we engage. In, in the in the world of affordances, right? We perceive affordances. The keyboard affords typing. The steps afford stepping. The doorknob affords turning. You know, so so that we see the, that we see the world in terms of in terms of how we can interact with it. Um, but in terms of the, the embodiment of selfhood, um, the evolution of selfhood, the evolution of emotionality, the the development of communication from moving to meaning. If I go back to Dave Lee, you know, we're looking at uh, organisms that perceive the world of affordances, but they perceive what can be done. So they're looking into the future. I can be turning that doorknob. I can be, this is the world of affordances of of what we can do. And this is why Dave's work is so important, because at the core of that self is a perceiving and acting, physically acting, motorically acting uh, organism, right? That's generating its own consequences yeah i yes. choose to reach out to catch that ball um and i have the agent of capacity because i've got the muscular power and the quick reflexes to be able to reach out and catch that ball and stop that you know cricket runner or that baseball runner from from running around and and therefore you know save the game um so so that's all about agency power uh and the intricate capacity of perception uh in light of the is a self uh, understood capacities of of movement or action in the world. So it's perception action, right? Absolutely critical. Hinged on little goal-directed acts. So so this is, for me, this is the chemistry of psychology because it gets to the base, or the molecules, I should say. It gets to the basic building blocks of, of our mind. And when you look at the mind in that way, then you can see how other aspects can, uh, tools, you know, cognitive tools of memory, abstraction, conceptual development, uh, abstract planning, language, all of these things add on to that fundamental capacity of perceiving the world uh, uh, and perceiving its affordances and and uh, acting out to engage those affordances of choice. So so this is the work I've been doing with a uh, kind of multidisciplinary field um, with evolutionary studies, evolutionary... Biology. So, so that's really important. And, and that kind of basic um, understanding of the mind as being uh, an agentive mind and one that also is appraising the world feelingfully with feeling um, the, and at the base of that is something I this is going to be beneficial to me this is going to be harmful to me I'll move towards yeah. the beneficial away from the harmful but then there's all sorts of graded nuances as we develop in sophistication which leads us to vitality affects which Dan talked about um, so so that but that's the basic building block of human development So, and that is a fundamentally different platform on which to view human minds and human life than the kind of more mechanistic cognitive uh, neuroscience view, which would say, actually those systems are all just automated systems that are non-conscious, non-mental, you know, specific mechanistic uh, effects. And the mind is something else that's layered on top, which is, which is sending commands down to the more primitive body and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and creating behavior. And I, I disagree with that view. I think it's fundamentally wrong. I think the yes. mind is there from the very beginning and we can see evidence of it in, in humans, even uh, in, in the late embryo stage. And it grows from that point up like a I think much more fundamental, uh, it, which is part of it, its intrinsic psycho-material, psychobiological structure. Um, and, and, and when you understand mind in, uh, intrinsic to the material of the biological organism, uh, and And you appreciate that, and you you work your way down. um well, you have a very different view about how robots ought to be constructed <laughs> for a start uh, and 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 therefore, you have a deeper appreciation of why robots are just um uh, robots. models yeah. or pictures yeah. of, of, of of animate organisms, you know, so yeah, um, you know, probably with enough computational power, they can also process moving images, um but but they're. But they're predominantly at the moment language models at least these are the ones accessible to consumers um but you're right so to to have them understand something of our vitality of our experience um they need to be able to perceive in other words sense they need to be able to sense our movements because this is how we're communicating and expressing our feelings you know the heartbeat whether it's fast or slow or the palpitations on the skin or or the, the 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 um you know, changing in the in the color of the skin as you're embarrassed or feel threatened or are interested or not you know so these all convey information um and our body posture of course and and our uh our vocal tone right so the pitch the timbre the intensity of our voice these are all conveying they're not conveying just simply linguistic utterances they're com- conveying something of our feelings and our interests and our levels of arousal and, and engagement um, and therefore the something of the vital meaning about the meaning of that interaction for one's own vitality, whether whether that's going to be you know uh, satisfactory, you know satisfying um, and beneficial or or actually perhaps um, a threat you know, to, to the vitality. Um, so you know, because you can be hostile or you can be friendly, right. So and that can be true of anybody, right. So that's so we're, we're constantly uh, sensing and appraising that basic primitive at uh, that basic primitive level. Everything that's going on underneath language, right? So, so for for the um, computer to be able to really learn about human human minds um, and human behavior and be able to model that and give us information about the affective state, it's going to need to sense movement, um, not just not just emotionality as expressed in a static image, right? So, and and that movement happens in three dimensions, and and the technologies is building where actually computers will have access to all that information. So, so I, I have no doubt that is the directionality um of uh, of, of human computer interaction development, and that needs to be done because without the computer understanding our affectivity, our arousal, and our intentionality, and what we appreciate or don't appreciate in our in our social lives, then then at the moment, you know these models are going to be very limited um to just providing information. Maybe that's better. I don't know, um because I don't know what it's like to interact emotionally with a uh with 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 a with a robot or a computer, but at the moment there's just not that opportunity right so um so that is the that is the the course of development, and that will happen um because it's a very obvious road to go down. but I should just remind the listeners that even when they begin to model our intentionality and begin to model our affect affective expressions made in movement, um it still does not mean that those computer models are experiencing affectivity themselves, or are experiencing our intentionality, or their own intentionality themselves? And I mean, and there's a really fundamental structural reason why that's the case. And I can go that into that in a, a at another time. But fundamentally, the way that information is organized and processed within these systems um, is is um, is qualitatively different. So it's it's uh, it's not on the same um, level as uh, or the same class. I should say of information processing as even basic organisms like cells or, or simple multicellular organisms. So, um, yeah, I think that that's, that's a real fundamental difference. So in the last 20 years, however, um, the idea that consciousness can be a topic of study, um, has, has really gained traction, um, because before that time, uh, consciousness was considered a bad word in science. Um, and the reason why it was is because science was really fixated on, on the, the material things, the material aspects um, of, uh, of, of reality, of, of the biology, of physics, um, maths, uh, and, and, and so on, the molecules and the genes and, and, and what have you. And psychology struggled, you know, as a discipline to find its position in amongst the so-called hard sciences, um, which, of which biology, biology would be one. Um, and so consciousness being such a kind of um, ethereal concept was dismissed as being something unscientific. Um, however, and psychology as a whole, I mean, if we go back to behaviorism, um, it, psychology, uh, the scientific psychology tried to get rid of subjective experience as a topic of study. Um, that that phenomenology of experience, it dismissed at least the kind of Anglo-American version of academic psychology. There were other streams, psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, psychodynamics, um, uh, and and so on, phenomenology and continental philosophy, uh, and many others that had um, a a very strong tradition of studying experience and therefore consciousness, um, but they didn't get the funding like what the academic psychologists were, were trying to achieve. So, Um, But this is all changing and it's been changing for the last 20 years with um, societies such as the scientific study uh, uh, for uh, consciousness or consciousness studies and and so on. So um, it has improved, um, but we still get, um, I think, caught up in very sort of ivory tower type debates about I had Greek friends and my Greek friends were beautiful. And they said, come to Greece for the summer. And of course, it's a great place to go for the summer. And we're on the island of Paros, um, which is a beautiful Cycladic island uh, where my friend grew up and, and we were having a good time. Um, and there was a church because, you know, Greece is full of um, very beautiful Greek Orthodox churches. And there were a lot of um, monks or, or um, priests in, in their full habit um, with the big white beards and the black robes, you know, walking um, along the harbor, going into this beautiful stone courtyard, uh, where there was a Greek church and a cloister, and it was a, and they had a poster on the outside, um, and the poster said scientific conference. <laughs> it was a scientific, uh, it was a scientific conference. Uh, so, so that made me think. Well, this is science, and it made me question the word. What's the word science? Right? Because I thought I was a scientist. I was a chemist and a neuroscientist, and becoming a psychologist and now, these were sciences. And so what were the priests, Greek Orthodox priests doing, talking about science, right? They were religious Interesting. people. They didn't, they didn't do lab work, you know, I thought. So I looked into, you know, in, in science, in the word, the, the, the origin of the word um, psi, psi is, is, is no, is to know, right? So science, science or, con, or psi to know the word, uh, the, the Greek root S-C-I is, is simply to know. So they're, their conference is about knowledge. So their conference on science was about knowledge, right? So science is knowledge, or it's the um, the, the institution of generating knowledge. So consciousness, con-sci, so con, C-O-N, is with, right? So it's the Latin root for with. So con-sci is with knowledge. And if you add the us, it's uh, it's the state of. So conscious or the the, the being with, so the... Conscience, conscious is the sta- is the state of being with knowledge and the ness is the sort of um uh, the, the the state around which so so conscious or to be conscious is to be the state of of being with knowledge right um so science is not only uh the the domain of uh chemistry and what what we would call the empirical sciences the experimental sciences um but it's actually a state of having knowledge, right? So consciousness is... is...
0: So my assumption was that to make a robot more smarter and more um, conscious, we need to move towards a, a direction where it has the ability to sense the world in more senses than just text or images. But looking at the findings of the origins of consciousness, I think the idea for a being to know about its environment there's certainly more than just sensing its environments it's about being conscious um i i I still find it mysterious and uh, very interesting to learn more about it but i think that will be for another episode
1: so i look forward to all the podcasts to come um, and we can explore this topic and it's a very important topic because it allows us to understand something about our human nature, but mm-hmm. also all those wonderful shiny technological toys that are in front of us, you know, robots or computers or phones that have new artificial intelligence capabilities. So I think it'll be fun.